Thank you very much for joining us again in another Tuesday discussion of Finance Runs essay. And today's essay is the nature of government. And here with me, I have James. Uh, James, uh, let me start with uh, the question for today. And that's the preliminary one. What is a government according to Ayn Rand? Well, Ayn Rand has a very standard, uh, non-controversial definition of what a government uh, is. It is the institution that has the exclusive power to enforce social con rules of social conduct in a given geographical area. So social rules in a certain geographical area and exclusive uh, power to enforce those rules is what we call a government. And that would apply to a dictatorship or a monarchy or the pharaohs of Egypt just as much as it would apply to a liberal uh, democracy. Uh, but what Ayn Rand is proposing here is something very controversial, uh, much more controversial than her definition of what government is. She's proposing a social revolution, a social revolution based on her ethics. And we've covered already the essays, uh, Man's Rights and Collectivized Rights, which lay the ethical foundation for this. But in short, Ayn Rand's proposal is to make all human interaction voluntary. A revolution, really, in human thought. And again, this is an essay about government that you can find not just in her book about capitalism and government, capitalism, the unknown ideal, but in her book about ethics, because Ayn Rand is proposing an ethical revolution to our social, to our society, the banning of coercion, the banning of coercion between human beings and rendering all human interaction voluntary, a world of peace and freedom, really for the first time proposed in a consistent way, a revolution in human thought, as far as I'm concerned, and in the development of humanity as such. Could I contend a bit more the idea of government being exclusive in a territory? And with that, I'm thinking the idea of what is called often as a Mexican standoff, where two institutions are ruling over the same geographical area or claim to at least <laughs> yeah. right well today we have it in venezuela i think as an example you pointed out earlier to me uh the united states for example has recognized one government of venezuela and the government that really is controlling you know caracas and most of the country is an entirely different government in any case in which there is uh, a revolution right a civil war what you have is you have a competition in effect going on between claimants for who the legitimate government is. And for Ayn Rand, that is a moral question. And it comes down, and the key concept here, as we indicated, is the concept of rights. Rights is the concept in morality which proves, shows the bridge, creates the bridge between ethics and politics. And it is the concept that renders government subordinate to moral law, to morality itself. For Ayn Rand, it comes down to, to the legitimacy of government, comes down to whether or not it's enforcing uh, individual rights, or at least a comparative case. This government is, is enforcing rights. This one's violating it more, at least in a significant sense. So the legitimacy in the competition between those two, or take the American Revolution, take the Re uh, Russian Revolution. There you had the Reds in Russia, you had the Reds and the Whites fighting out who is the legitimate government of Russia. And there it was just a question of force and which you know gang took over, really. <laughs> uh, the American Revolution, you had two comparatively good governments in the context of the time, only America was definitely uh, arguing for a more legitimate uh, form of government because their rights were being violated. So the test there for Ayn Rand of legitimacy is which government better enforces individual rights or does enforce individual rights at all. Uh, and so that would be the test of legitimacy. For Ayn Rand, rights come down to this argument, and human beings have one basic means of knowing, observation and the logical integration of our observation, which she called reason, um, the material that identifies, the faculty that identifies uh, and integrates the material provided by our senses. That is our means of knowing our only means of knowing. All these other means are magical means of knowing, Ouija boards, faith, whatever. Uh -uh. And because it's our only means of knowing reality, 
our ability to act on that knowledge, our judgment, individual, only individuals think and, and are capable of thinking, are thinking units. And so human survival, our basic means of survival, hinges on our ability to deploy our reason, our own judgment in our acting and living. To, so in order to further my life and achieve the goals of my life, I need to be free to use my own judgment, to disagree with others. For Ayn Rand, freedom is the basic social condition for the operation of our basic tool of survival, for the individual's basic tool of survival. Therefore, uh, government, which has the exclusive control over uh, the, the enforcement of rules, that is to say, they're the legitimate user of force, uh, it raises the question, what is legitimate force? In Ayn Rand's view, the only way to violate individual rights is through the initiation, the aggressive use of physical force, either directly or indirectly, to overcome an individual will. So long as rights are being enforced, uh, uh, freedom prevails. Uh, rule against violence or force is not a prohibition of your, against freedom, it is a protection of freedom, uh, in Ayn Rand's view. So government exists in her view, for one reason and one reason alone, to defend individual rights and to render a society free of coercion, wherein uh, all human interaction is voluntary. Thank you. I think um, what, the way that she frames the whole essay is by asking herself, do people need government and why? And, and I think you've already answer that um but i think one of the first steps that she uses to justify that is what are the benefits of living in society could you comment on what are the benefits and the threats of living in, in a society it is far from ideal for an individual to live alone on a desert island that is not the ideal condition for human beings to live in uh, society is a much better place <laughs> to attempt to survive and live for a couple of very important reasons. One is knowledge. I could not uh, have reestablished what a mere one percent of the accumulated human knowledge over the last, you know, ten thousand years. Uh, and so I get the huge benefit in living from in society from other people's uh, knowledge and all the collected knowledge of the past. The other thing we get in society is increased productivity through trade. We can specialize, we can, we have the division of labor, and this permits us to specialize and therefore take advantage of expertise, special, and as the division of labor actually sophisticates and increases, more and more uh, expertise is employed with each task, and productivity and the quality of the products in, in, inevitably are enhanced by this uh, process but it can only be enhanced by a process of voluntary trade. There are really two great rights violators, two great initiators of force, basically. There, there are some other ones, but principally it's only criminals and governments. And everyone understands that we need governments to protect us from criminals, from people murdering you or stealing your property. That's easily grasped by most people. Most people don't realize that compared to criminals, governments have been the major violators of rights in history. Compared to individual criminals, your absolute monarchs, your Hitlers, your Stalins, your pharaohs make criminals look like pikers. So it is against government that we need to have our rights protected even more. <laughs> than against uh, other criminals. We need a state to protect us from criminals, and we need rules to hamstring the government so that it doesn't become a violator of our rights. Um, and this is what Ayn Rand is on one side saying, we absolutely have to prevent a government from going too far. Even the same rules apply to government as we've said this in a thousand different contexts. For example, with inflation and money, we're saying government printing money is no different than a private counterfeiter either morally or in its economic effect. Well, let's abstract that wider. Let's abstract that wider. Uh, the government can't do anything that a private criminal could do. It, it's no more legitimate in using aggressive force, initiating violence or force against people than any criminal is. It's always wrong to initiate force against a person. 
The only legitimate use of force is in response, retaliation, defense against, and that is why we need government. It is the nature of force, it is in the nature of violence itself that uh, we need an institution with the exclusive power, and the exclusive power, she means here. In other words, competing governments or anarchy will not do. Absent a government, what we basically have is gang warfare. Gang warfare. That, of course, is not the rule of law. That is not a society of freedom. That is not a society that bans uh, physical force and establishes nothing but voluntary uh, interaction between <laughs> adults uh, at all. And so she goes into some length on the idea of anarchy, why we need government, uh, and why it needs to be a monopoly, and why you can't have competing governments. That's really just gang warfare. A free market presupposes freedom. The reason why a free market works in computers or in automobiles is because we have freedom, is because force has been banned. The market is actually free. To have a market for the competition between governments, for example, as has been proposed by anarcho-capitalists, uh, fails to recognize that that kind of competition cannot exist. A competition of force is simply comes down to gang warfare. If and she uses the example, if you hire government X uh, and I hire government Y, right? Uh, what happens when our governments get into conflict? Well, then it becomes a conflict between your mafia protection racket versus my mafia protection racket, in effect. And th that's not legitimate government at all. That's gang warfare. And it only encourages a society of violence and force. Could you comment a bit on the idea of uh, retaliation as a right? And could you also comment on why it would be desirable for people? To see to see that right to the government and um, say I won't retaliate for myself. Well, we don't surrender all of our right to self-defense to the government by any means. If someone is coming at me with a knife, or someone's attacking me, or trying to rob me, or rape me, or something, I have a right to use force, reasonable and all the reasonable force that's necessary to stop that from happening. So I don't give up my emergency or immediate right to self-defense. But there's kinds of self-defense which uh, really cannot be left to individuals. For example, fighting organized crime, or more significantly, fighting international dictatorships that are aggressive, fighting an Adolf Hitler. So should individuals be allowed to have police forces or military forces so significant that they can fight off those very serious and real threats to individual rights? No. It, uh, it would be a threat to my neighbors should I collect an army with tanks and missiles able to fight off the threat from Nazi Germany to me. And so what we do in a society, a free society, by the consent of the governed, in effect, we surrender those larger right to self-defense against foreign governments and against organized crime to the government so that government can engage in those activities, those larger scale organized activities to fight the aggressive use of force by say organized crime or by uh, uh, aggressive governments abroad. Um, and uh, this is the way to protect individual rights, as opposed to allowing every individual to have their own nuclear arsenal or fleet of tanks. <laughs> we surrender that right so that peace can be maintained domestically and we can still have a credible uh, defense against dictators and organized crime. So to that extent, government is in effect what we cede that larger uh, right of self-defense to uh, when we, through our consent, now, I don't believe in social contract theory, <laughs> you know, that I never signed a social contract. But so long as the government is only stopping aggressive force, it is doing nothing illegitimate. It is doing nothing illegitimate. And so long as I can participate in the government itself as a part of a representative democracy, as a member of a jury, and all the different ways in which consent of the governed is expressed in a liberal democracy, then government is obtaining, in effect, its power through the consent of the governed. Could you also comment on the benefits of objectivity in law instead of being oneself the ruler and the, and the one who legislates its own oh, law? This is an absolute precondition for uh, the enforcement of individual rights on a legitimate government. Were I to have a vague law that could be interpreted in various ways, 
or even just two different ways. And it's an or, a law that's enforced selectively, only against, we have a general rule, but it's only enforced against this violation of it. Then what we have on our hands is a non-objective law. Each member of society has to know what's against the law in a clear way, know what to expect as a result. And it shouldn't matter who the heck is the one doing it. This rule applies to everybody. So it has to be a universal rule that applies equally to everyone. It has to be a clear rule that everyone can understand, know what's forbidden, know what's permitted, and know what the penalties are. Absent that, we it may as well be dictatorship because then it's the whim of the ruler. Whoever the ruler is, is in effect going by the seat of his pants like a pragmatist without any real principles. It's an unprinc it must be perforce an unprincipled application of whatever quote rules they think they're enforcing. It's not the enforcement of objective rules at all. So objective law and Ayn Rand indicates that we really don't have a full bodied uh, philosophy of law based on her thinking. There's been some good philosophy of law. And you know, the English and American legal system of common law, Ayn Rand largely agreed with in its original form. Uh, it's remarkable how many rational rules were developed by uh, the Anglo-American system of common law. <clears throat> but nonetheless, uh, it is, uh, that is the sole function and purpose of government in Ayn Rand's view. And it, should it stray beyond that, it is no longer legitimate. And in this essay, there is some, also something that is very interesting to me, and that is the view, I, I often hear conservatives say that the government is because we are not angels, we are imperfect morally. But Aaron has a very different view, right? Very much so. Um, can you hear me? Right. Well, even if, let's imagine, you know, it's, I, it's hard for me to imagine a world where there would be no criminals at all. Uh, you know, people have free will and there still will be criminals. And so, yeah, there are these people who are de definitely not angels out there who we need government for uh, to protect us against. Uh, on this note, I would add what Thomas Jefferson had, uh, said, though. If people are not able to govern themselves, at least to some extent, then have we found angels in the form of men who could govern us? If people are this way, then how can we trust government? But leaving that aside, let's assume we did live it's a fantasy idea, but let's assume we did live in a world in which everyone uh, uh, was an angel. <laughs> we were all angels. Uh, would we still need government? Ayn Rand says yes. Individuals are not omniscient. They're not infallible. They uh, have to learn by a certain process. They only have certain information available to them. Honest disagreements. Honest disagreements. Disagreements at the margin about so many things. Application and for example, the meaning of a contract that you and I have, uh, uh, that may be, there may be ambiguous terms where we have an honest disagreement as to what the contract actually called for each of us to do. Those kind of disagreements are still possible among rational, honest human beings. And we would still need a system to resolve such disagreements in a peaceful way. Government. Thank you. Um, we have a couple of super chat questions. Uh, Jonathan says, James is awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. Thessie <laughs> uh, um, says, hi, I guess. And Gail, she asks, do you as a legal, uh, do you, James, as a legal scholar, have any ideas about how you would improve America's government structure to make it more accountable to its citizens? <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, quite a few. I think there are huge radical steps that need to be taken in American law. For example, the entire development of administrative law by the federal government, all these alphabet agencies. You know, our founding fathers set up a division of powers government. Executive, legislative, and judicial authorities were separated into three branches, independent branches of government that operated equally and independently of one another. Is this division of power that sort of hamstrings government to a large extent and is a major bulwark and protection of our rights. Well, in the 20th century, all these new agencies, the Food and Drug Administration, the Federal Communications Commission, they combine in themselves, for example, the power to legislate, the power to enforce the law, 
and the power to adjudicate uh, uh, cases of that law. So all three are be of those combined powers, which the framers wanted separated, have been recombined in these tyrannical government uh, uh, bureaucracies, administrations. And so I would, uh, just as one example, just as one example, and I can go down a whole list of examples like this, uh, where uh, they have uh, the United States government has stepped away from the original idea of the founders to the violation, to the direct violation of our rights. Um, and I would call for an abolition of this kind of fusion of the separate powers that James Madison and Thomas Jefferson wanted to keep separate uh, that have now been fused in these, uh, in my view, dictatorial government agencies. That's just one right there, non-objective laws. You know, we, we talk about objective uh, law. We, there are a lot of great rules, for example, in contracts, uh, take one of the rules in common law, uh, statute against frauds, uh, a contract that goes longer than a year in duration or is uh, calls for a, a, a value exchange or a money exchange over a certain amount have to be written down. And we have a rule that says, look, if you want to have a contract that's that long and that expensive, you really have to write down the terms or we're not going to enforce it. And that's a rational, seems to me a rational rule. You just can't have an oral contract for a 10 year long billion dollar contract. Uh, so rules like that need to be enforced and we need to go back in a lot, in a many, many instances to the common law understanding of these things. Could you comment a bit more on what non-objective law is in i remember that one of the characters of atlas shrug names it as one of the most uh one of the greatest evils uh, i remember ex the exact quote could you comment what on what it is it well i a non-objective law may as well be no law at all because it's really just the whim of the tyrant that you're subject to um, it, uh, we must, to, a law to be valid, morally valid, not only needs to be an actual uh, enforcement of individual rights, and only an enforcement of individual rights, but it needs to be clear, objective, and understood. In the philosophy of law, there are rules of evidence, there are rules of procedure that uh, are absolutely in, instrumental, and obviously they have to be based, you have, you know, we're talking about government here. This is way down the line in philosophy. We're presupposing metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, all of that is being presupposed here. And so the valid rules of evidence and objective laws really hinge on the issue of epistemology. And that aspect, the rules of evidence and procedure, uh, need to, we need to have objectivism, objectivist epistemology applied to them in order to really make them uh, consistently objective uh, is the best way to put it. And uh, on the ethical side, we need to make sure that each law does no more than defend individual rights. That is to say, in some form, ban coercive force from society. And that's all, that's all it can possibly do. And that's the nature of an objective law. If you don't have that, if those conditions aren't met, then what you're living under, take one of my favorite examples of a non-objective law is antitrust laws. We've discussed this before. The antitrust laws in the United States, laws against uh, monopolies, you know, pri big private companies from being monopolistic. You can't charge too much because that would prove that you have a monopoly and you can abuse your position, whatever too much is in their mind. You can't charge too little. That would be unfair competition, you see. You're putting your competition out of business and you can't charge the same as your competitors because that would be prima facie proof that you are colluding with your competition to, to set the price. So there is nothing that a businessman can do to prevent uh, having a antitrust law come down on him arbitrarily for no apparent reason, from no reason he could predict uh, from the government. He has to be ready at any time. He has to be ready to defend against an antitrust law, which he's constantly in violation of because simply by doing business that is of course tyranny on the face of it a classic example of a non-objective law reminds me like the typical uh toxic husband that just says things erratically just for the wife to be afraid of whatever that's it happens we want to keep them in constant terror 
We want to let the business person know that he or she can always be subject to our arbitrary, you know, enforcement, our coming down at any time on them. And of course, this has a dramatic impact. I mean, in my view, the Silicon Valley, uh, for example, the big tech Silicon Valley people like Google and Facebook, it would be horrific to use antitrust laws against them. I happen to think they probably do lean left in their politics uh, anyway. But when you've got government threatening antitrust enforcement against them, is it any wonder that they're kowtowing to and uh, kissing up to the bureaucrats and the politicians in Washington? That's exactly what you can predict. Just antitrust laws have an effect on your ability to express yourself on Facebook. Think about it. <laughs> Or in North Korea, I don't think that there is a law that one should clap the dictator for 10 minutes. But people feel that there is this unwritten law that they must do that or they will be punished. It's incredible because the response to, to antitrust and monopoly is to give all the power to one big government agency, a permanent monopoly, t total monopoly that people can do nothing about uh, that is entrenched and that has to be, uh, you know, undone by law. Uh, uh, as opposed to a free market competition, which is far more dynamic and flexible. So it just seems like a bizarre solution to the problem to me in the first place. And from what is the source of the government's authority? You, you've already mentioned the idea of uh, that you don't believe in, in the idea of a social contract. If, if it's not that, what is then? Well, the legitimacy of government comes from what it's actually doing and what its basis is. Uh, Ayn Rand believed that the United States started off really as the only uh, le morally legitimate government in its inception, in the conceptual inception. The, the Declaration of Independence at the time of the American Revolution forthrightly put out the idea that governments exist for one reason and one reason alone, and that is to protect individual rights, and that every individual had the equal right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that when and if government doesn't do that and starts becoming a violator of those rights, then it becomes the obligation it becomes morally permissible for those who are being, uh, you know, uh, tyrannized to uh, revol to have a revolution and overthrow the government and change it. What a radical idea the Declaration of Independence set forth. Government exists only to protect the rights of its individual citizens and that all of its individual citizens equally have these rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, and that when government steps beyond that, we have the, the, the moral capacity and probably should overthrow the government in favor of a more rights respecting government. Um, so it is the uh, whether or not government is doing its morally legitimate uh, function and only its uh, morally legitimate function that gives it its moral legitimacy in the first place. Secondly, it is an emanation of the consent of the governed. That is to say, if I'm free to emigrate from my country, my remaining in the United States is my consent to be governed by the United States government, in effect. And we, as I say, there are many other ways in which we attempt to uh, have the consent of the governed uh, uh, be a part of our government. And that is the valid role for representative democracy, if you will. That has to be limited. Government has to be limited, so even a, the, the power of that uh, democratic majority has to be hamstrung and severely limited by rights, right? The Bill of Rights of the United States begins with glorious, beautiful language. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion, restricting the freedom of religious uh, practice, uh, uh, censoring the press, freedom of speech, the freedom to peaceably assemble and protest the government. And then it goes on, you know, privacy rights and so forth, uh, the procedural rights and crime. What they're saying is that individual rights are beyond the power of Congress to do at all. That no majority, however big, has the right to violate certain individual rights. Uh, that was a moral revolution in Ayn Rand's uh, view. And the first step in the course of history towards her goal of a society which bans force and in which all human interaction is voluntary. Could you say a bit more on, on something really related to that, which is the idea that um, everything 
for the individual, everything that is uh, not forbidden, they can do. But for the government, everything that is not expressly permitted, they cannot do. Mm. See, that was another great moral revolution that was occurring in the Enlightenment. Uh, it was beginning in English uh, uh, law and was really became an important part of the original American idea in the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, for example. The powers not given to government mean that the people are free. But the rights that we list in the Bill of Rights, those aren't an exclusive list, says the Ninth Amendment. So freedom is to be read openly, broadly, generally. Uh, powers that we grant to government, that's to be read narrowly uh, and specifically. So it's what government is permitted to do is this list. People are free to do anything else. They've got the freedom to do anything that isn't forbidden by government, presumably because it's a violation of someone's rights. Uh, whereas before the Enlightenment, it was the assumption, uh, uh, and obviously still today in non-liberal governments, it's the assumption that, and increasingly even in places like Britain and the United States, uh, that the other way around. No, 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 no. You're only free to do those things that you are, that we allow you to do. But that is the very definition of tyranny. That's like a form of slavery. Any slave master allows the, their slave a little freedom. Total, total 24 seven slavery would probably kill the slave. So he knows to give them a day off and so forth. Uh, no, uh, when you say that the people are uh, free only to do that which is permitted, as opposed to saying government can do only that which government's allowed, you've completely turned the tables on liberty and rights. Don't you think that a lot of these um, three three-letter word agencies that you mentioned exist from a, at least from a demand side is because they can provide a, a bit some legal certainty to people so that they know a bit what is permitted. Boy, is uh, that for them to do? Human beings make long-range plans. They have to be able to make long-range plans. And in, in, when you start a business. When you start an organization of any kind and you have long-term goals, they're long-term goals. It's not just next month. It's next year, next 10 years, next 20 years, next 30 years even. You, you, you've got to be able to plan ahead, whether it's been, or in your private life. When you get married and you have children, you decide where to live and where to send your kids to school. You have to be thinking long range. Or you have to be thinking, for example, of your retirement. I may get old and sick as I, I should have insurance. I should take care of my retirement. People have to be able to think and plan long range for their own well-being in any number of ways, important ways. And that is another important uh, aspect of having objective laws, stable laws, laws that are only there to protect individual rights and to ban uh, the aggressive use of force. Could you comment on what are the basic functions of a government according to Ayn Rand? Is the welfare state, for instance, one of those? Is the what? The welfare state. Oh, no, the welfare state is not one of them. Ayn Rand believed that the welfare state, for various reasons, was, you know, we can get into the, the altruist basis for it, the absolute, the, uh, the negative effects of it, why government really does it. But no, 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 no. Let's start at the beginning where we should start. If government exists only to protect individual rights, and if individual rights can only be violated by means of physical coercion, than direct or indirect, then the government's sole function is to uh, step in on only when and if there has been an aggressive use of force, the government abroad or some criminal at home. <clears throat> that alone is the legitimate basis uh, for government in Ayn Rand's view. So what are the valid functions of government? In her view, they're basically three. The police to protect us from criminals, the military, she calls it the army, but it's the military, more broadly speaking, to protect us from foreign governments and courts to resolve disputes between people who will necessarily arise, for example, in contract or in civil disputes, uh, simple disagreements uh, about force that need to be resolved in court. So these are really the only three functions of government that she recognizes as legitimate. There are various forms of it that it can take, um, but that's really what it comes down to in her view. Uh, because that's all the government is there for, is to protect individual rights, to render our society uh, one of peace and freedom, in which, as I say, all human interaction is voluntary. 
And in the context of what we went through last year, is do you think that she th she thought that there was a role for the government to act in a pandemic? Yes, yes. If this is the key thing here, the government is there to protect us from physical harm from other people, physical harm from other people. And that doesn't matter. It doesn't hinge for Ayn Rand on the intent of the harmer. So if I have a contagious, deadly disease, the government is certainly within its rights to restrict my freedom, to quarantine me. Ayn Rand was very clear on this. When it comes to something like a pandemic, where there is a you know a highly contagious, potentially deadly disease, it is certainly within the government's power to restrict the freedom of those who are provably carrying the virus. Provably carrying the virus. She also said that uh, vaccine shouldn't be mandated, but what a wonderful thing. You can get the vaccine and get all the protection that the vaccine uh, allows, uh, but you can't force someone else to take a vaccine, right? Uh, that would be a violation of their rights. But I can get all the protection that the vaccine allows. So after that, it's really, why, why am I caring? You can make arguments like, well, the unvaccinated, even if they don't have the disease, may still be a carrier of the disease. Well, have we ever looked at it that way? Guilty of having the virus before proven you have the virus? The potential, first of all, the disease has such a low fatality rate. I mean, you have a 99.97% chance of surviving it even if you get the disease. Uh, so the idea of shutting down the economy, now consider what they did, what we've, Western governments have reacted, how the United States and Great Britain have reacted to COVID, in effect, putting people under house arrest, just destroying small business, shutting them down, ending any public meetings. Um, that is absolutely insane. That is shutting down life in the name of protecting some uh, small few from dying, a small few from dying, that is definitely wrong. And that kind of mathematics is the non, that is a classic example of a non-objective law, isn't it? <laughs> a perfect example of it. So no, Ayn Rand would say that if you were to restrict the free to prevent people from living their lives, you're violating their rights especially when you have no indication that they are the ones spreading this physical harm. That would be the line for Ayn Rand, you see. And so, for example, at a border, international border, Ayn Rand was uh, totally uh, in favor of legal immigration and emigration. But is there a valid role for the border? Even in her ideal society, yes. The government would have a right to screen for criminals, terrorists, and people can carrying potentially deadly contagious diseases. I believe that those are all valid uh, functions for, say, an international border. Uh, but for example, it is not valid to prevent people from coming in because you don't agree with their ideology, or they come from a different race or religion than you do. That would be totally wrong. If, if a peaceful person is trying to immigrate to the United States, uh, uh, right, uh, <laughs> they're not a criminal, they don't have a deadly disease, then they should be allowed in. They have a freedom to the comment, freedom to move. Uh, my rights as an American already here does not include the right to prevent other people from entering the country. Uh, now, of course, things like welfare do complicate that issue. Uh, but, you know, as we pointed out many times before, welfare is very counterproductive, hurts the poor. It's been demonstrated over and over in my country that welfare has been thoroughly counterproductive. Ayn Rand would say that's by its very nature. That's by its very nature. For me to take advantage of the rationality, the reason of other people, I need them to be free. I need Henry Ford to be able to develop the automated assembly line. I need Thomas Edison to be able to invent an electric light bulb. It's their freedom that I get advantage, uh, that I get the advantage of other people's rationality from. Um, so in Ayn Rand's view, to give you a, the long and short answer, it's only when someone represents a physical threat to other people that the government has a right to step in. Thank you very much, James. Uh, we have a couple, I have a couple of questions uh, for me, but also for from the super chat. I think Gail uh, is responding to the previous question about how to improve the American system. And she says, I have wondered about the Supreme Court judges Maybe an objective law which says that three strikes and you're out. No gunling handshake. 
I'm what not sure what she means there. Um, uh, three strikes and you're out. Well, that, that of course sort of refers to a certain specific and um, either baseball or criminal law that we've had that concept applied. I'm not sure how it applies here. The Supreme Court is, I think, a, uh, an important institution in America. What we say is <clears throat> that the Constitution is a limitation on both Congress's ability to pass law and the president's ability to enforce those laws. Um, and we need look at those nine people in black robes. They don't have any money. They don't control the purse like Congress. They don't control the army like the president does or the police force like the president does. In effect, they have no real power. And they're just a bunch of lawyers reading the Constitution saying whether or not the other branches have complied with the Constitution. I think that is necessary. Uh, I think that we have we're in a state of full on corruption on the Supreme at the Supreme Court level because neither side understands the original American system as it was originally understood. Neither the conservatives, in my view, nor the liberals. The liberals say, to hell with the language of the Constitution. We can strike it out. The Supreme Court can strike out uh, obsolete or archaic phrases as needed. The interstate part of interstate commerce, for example, or the Ninth Amendment can just be uh, ver surplusage, verbal surplusage, as the Supreme Court said. And the, uh, on the right, they believe that if it wasn't, uh, you know, the law as understood by the founding fathers, free speech can, you know, the founders may have used this big, broad language about freedom of speech and freedom of religion, but they didn't really mean it. They only meant it as it was enforced back in the 18th century. Of course, that too is a misunderstanding of the framers and the nature of individual rights. And so conservatives will restrict the understanding of freedom and rights, uh, whereas liberals will expand the power of government. Both of them are wrong and both for the same reason. Both of them are ignoring the Ninth and Tenth Amendments and the basic nature of the United States government as the founders set it up. So we need to reestablish the original idea of what the Supreme Court's function was. Uh, here, in the UK, here in the UK, if you read, for instance, the libel laws, it's only because the judges make some sense of them that uh, this country isn't a dictatorship, basically. Well, see, that's um, it. That's it. Sometimes what happens is Parliament or Congress will pass such an insane law that uh, the uh, it is, in my view, it's a bad thing, too. They'll come in and they'll correct it using their, we have some additional authority, da, 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 da. You know, it's only been a while that Great Britain has had a Supreme Court. In any event, what they'll do is they'll come in and try and save the legislatures from themselves, uh, you know, pulling their law out of the fire, make it livable, uh, when maybe what we should do is give it to them with both hands and uh, let the legislature feel uh, the effect, the impact of their laws, if it's within the existing constitutional framework. Maybe that's the better way to go. But you're right. Courts sometimes save legislatures from them, from themselves. I think I, we had misunderstood Gail's question. She oh. she has said, I think she... she um, Gave yeah, more so details. Questions, so saying, maybe I mean, if, if the judges make three young judge, judgments, they are out. Oh, 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 very interesting. No, I think I'm in favor of life tenure for the United States Supreme Court. In fact, federal uh, judges, particularly appellate judges in particular, I think they should have life uh, appointments so that they are free from worries about an election or career, things like that to to say that it's they can still be impeached and maybe we should be more aggressive about impeaching judges who violate uh you know the, the canons of uh, judicial conduct uh and i think that is a valid thing if a president or a, a secretary of state is not doing their job that's grounds for impeachment um i'm not sure how that would apply with supreme court justices but i would not take away the life tenure for supreme court justices I think that keeps them free, at least uh, in part, from political considerations and certain financial considerations that might give otherwise that give them a bias, even a subconscious bias that they may not be aware of. But if they walk in the door like your typical leftist or your typical your right winger uh, into the Supreme Court with some lousy ideas, that's where the problem is. It's in the Senate approving and the president nominating judges who really have no interest in really enforcing the Constitution as it was originally conceived and written. And Thessie has a super chat 
which I don't completely get. If you can explain a bit more, Thessy, I would appreciate it. She says, it's like being put on the stocks of medieval ages, only that it's online. And in parentheses, she says, modern punishment. Modern punishment. Well, punishment, according to Ayn Rand, should be proportional to the crime. Right? We can't uh, necessarily, in every, she believed in eye for an eye uh, justice. That is to say, we should gauge the punishment to approximate the harm that the criminal created and justly enforce it on him. Uh, so, uh, yeah, punish, and not only that, it should be proportionate. That is to say, the same instances of the same crime should be treated the same way. That's an important part of justice and fairness, too. And again, that's part of an objective law, how you punish people. The punishment can make a law that's otherwise objective totally non-objective. If, for example, the results can vary, no matter you know, based on the whims of the judge. So, yeah, punishment needs to be uh, proportionate and rational in both of those ways uh, that Ayn Rand indicated uh, for it to be an objective law and a just one. Uh, and we have, in many ways, gone beyond that. We've entered a realm of arbitrary punishment in certain laws, which are hard to predict what the outcome will be. That's non-objective. And punishments which are not, in any sense, proportionate uh, to the crime uh, or to other instances of the crime. I have two more questions um, before we finish. And mm -hmm. the first one is, why, even though there have been truly awful governments th throughout history, they, they try to become, they try to keep some resemblance of the keepers of order and safety. Why do they need to resort to that um, kind of issue? At the end of the day, governments really do depend upon the consent of the governed in one sense, whether or not they're liberal representative democracies or not, uh, people overthrow their governments and have overthrown their governments many times in the past. Um, the Roman Republic fell apart and became an empire. Um, governments have changed in the same, the same government has changed radically over time. Um, so we, we have a world in, <laughs> in which uh, governments are, uh, can and do change like that. And I think that's that's the thing we have really must bear in mind uh, with this um, on this question. Did that sufficiently answer it? <laughs> yes. And and the last question that I have is if you could comment a bit on the achievement on the achievements of the American system. You've already mentioned a couple of them, but <sighs> as a conclusion, well, you know. One of the great things that the American system did, it was, you know, and I you know, there is so much to say about um, the original founding of America was uh, the first really moral basis for government, as Ayn Rand said, but it was still a work in progress. Uh, slavery still existed in many states in the United States until the 1860s and uh, other bad things, uh, you know, women didn't have uh, equal rights through mo most of the 19th, anything like equal rights through most of the 19th century. It was still worse in Great Britain for women's rights, frankly. And, but those things were in the 19th century undergoing serious change. So that by the beginning of the 20th century, there were significant changes with regard to class, race, sex, uh, in both Britain and the United States that was changing and liberalizing this, the society, making it freer and more equal for everybody. That's on one side. Look at the material manifestations. Look at the material manifestations in the 19th century in the United States and Great Britain. The wealth created, the vast middle class created, the new inventions that changed our lives, made our lives safer, more productive. Uh, you cannot imagine, I mean, you, you know, between, i just give one example. Uh, uh, before London, around 1800, which had a population then at about, of about a million people. There'd only been one city in human history that had ever had a million people, ancient Rome. And when it fell, it lost 90% of its population in less than a century. So when you consider the population, the anthropologically unprecedented growth in population, the, the historically unprecedented growth in the wealth and well-being and safety and health of ordinary people, 
the practical effect of freedom is clear. And it has been ignored, of course, by uh, many, most of our academic historians and many of our academic economists even have ignored the tremendous uh, benefits to humanity that were brought about with the development of uh, liberalism, uh, respect for individual rights, and the idea that government should enforce individual rights, uh, both in terms of justice for all and in terms of the material well-being and freedom uh, that the people, the prosperity that people have enjoyed has been historically revolutionary and unprecedented. That's all. <laughs> I agree. Um, thank you, James, very much. Um, is there anything else that we didn't touch on, on this discussion that you think would have been great to discuss? I, I know I do this, but I'm going to go around the, the full circle here now. What Ayn Rand is proposing is an ethical revolution to our entire society. And it is based on her moral approach, her ethics, an ethics that has a vision of the future in which human beings only interact voluntarily by cooperation, a world in which violence and force and theft and aggression have been utterly banned. This is in one sense, never been conceived until Ayn Rand. But on the other hand, it is, in my view, the only vision for a benevolent, civilized future for humanity. Thank you very much, James. Sure. Thank um, you. And that brings me to the last super chat of today. And it's Bonnie. She asks, uh, what is the next essay? And the next essay is the stimulus and the response. Uh, I'm hoping we can get a, a, an objectivist psychologist or psychiatrist to join us for that. Uh, so it's not just me, uh, but uh, if it isn't, uh, I'll, I'll try and wing it myself uh, because it is uh, uh, something that may go outside my, my as I'm a lawyer and a philosopher. So it's outside, this may be directly outside of my particular expertise. So maybe we'll call in another expert. We'll see. Yes. And um we'll keep uh, the members updated on the developments of this. Maybe yes, if uh, that uh, person has another date, we could maybe change the, the schedule of the essay and it could change, but. Yes, if we could get a good uh, objectivist psychologist, it would be worth changing the date. This Friday's essay for Leonard Peikoff is Maybe You're Wrong, an epistemological subject. So please join us on Friday for that. Thank you. Uh, and please, uh, if you like this kind of discussions, uh, consider subscribing up, uh, to the Enron Center UK uh, membership starts £10 a month. Okay. Thank you. See you next week, James. Thank you. Thank you.